to go ahead and find your place in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, and then put a finger there. That's the, the text that we're kind of digging into over the entire month of December, and then find Colossians chapter 1. And let's stand as we open God's Word together. I'm going to read these verses. I'm going to show you a video clip after we read these verses together. And uh, we're going to talk about Jesus as the mighty God, the mighty God. Continuing this series on His name, we know that it is a name that is above every name. We'll see it in Philippians uh, chapter 2 and, and verse 11 in just a moment. But what was the prophecy given to Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter 9, we see that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And I don't know what translation I'm quoting here as I try to find my place, but we know that his name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor. And then today we're going to look at the second name, Mighty God. And then next week we'll look at Everlasting Father. And then Pastor Ben on Christmas Day will bring a message on the Prince of Peace. And all of these other three names are building up to that Prince of Peace, laying the foundation for the Prince of Peace. So now flip over to Colossians chapter 1. Let's look at verses 15 through 20. This was actually a hymn in the first century church that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul would record into this letter. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, because by Him everything was created in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place or preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the word that became flesh so that we might behold your glory. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season, especially on this day that we focus on missions, that we will see that the message of our mighty God is a missional message that the world needs to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As we think about uh, missions on this day, I have a, another video clip. This is actually one that uh, we recorded just kind of off the cuff when I was in India. But just a word of thanks to the Trinity family for our missions giving. So if you want to... Um, Turn your head to the screen just for about a minute here and uh, see a word, uh, a word from a video that was done uh, just a few weeks ago. You know, that was, it was phenomenal to see what God's doing in India, but as uh, if any wanted to let you guys know, it's because of our faithfulness in giving. And that's the message of Chris, Christmas, that God so loved the world that he gave. 
The message of Christmas is the, the message of giving, and we serve a mighty God. Why do we give? Why do we go? It's because unto us a child was born. Unto us a son was given. The message of Christmas is a, as a message of giving. Now, last week we kind of looked at what I called the telescopic view as we, we zoomed in on the coming of Christ from the Old Testament, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15, all the way through the minor prophets, we saw that the birth of Christ was foretold, that this great gift was going to be given. And we saw that this gift would come in the form of a wonderful counselor. As we saw that it wasn't just some counselor who sits across the desk from us and says, tell me how you feel, but it was a counselor who was a mighty warrior, who was a military strategist, a brilliant strategist. He was the God of angels armies going before us. And the next name we come to in Isaiah 9-6 is that he is the mighty God, the word mighty having to do with his sovereignty and the word God, El, there. There's so many names and words for God in the Old Testament, but the name here, El, has to do with just his deity. It was a, a very general term for God. And so mighty in, in the Hebrew, Gibor, Kind of like, you know, the name Zsa Gibor. Well, she was not supposed to be the mighty God, right? But this is the word Gibor. It's, it's the word in Hebrew for mighty, all-powerful. He is that God, El Gibor. God also, that, that, that phrase El is in Emmanuel. We get a word imminent from the first part of that, at present with us. El, God, God with us, Emmanuel is also El Gibor, God who is almighty, the, the mighty God. The word mighty there also meant omnipotent, to have all power. It's used in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 30 to describe the lion as compared to all of the other beasts, that the lion was the mightiest. He, he had power over all of the other beasts. In a messianic psalm, we see that word in Psalm 45 and verse 3, a, a picture of who Christ would be as it says, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, and in your splendor and in your majesty. And so might here has not only to do with ability. You know, sometimes we use the word might or power to speak of someone's ability. It also had to do with authority. So whenever you read about God being mighty, he was great and the greatest not only in his ability but also in his authority. He was ruler over all things, as we'll see here in the book of Colossians. So the Christ child of Christmas, this, this son who would be given would be the wonderful counselor. He would also be the mighty God. And when we see these prophecies of Messiah, we look into the Christmas story often and we say, how was this prophecy fulfilled. And it's not necessarily in Luke 1 and 2 or in John chapter 1 in the theological discourse, even though we read about him as God, and we'll reference that in just a moment. It's not necessarily in Matthew's gospel, but it's perhaps in this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae that we see one of the best outlined descriptions of who Christ was as the mighty God. Now, there are four great passages that we call the the great Christological passages of the New Testament. It's this passage in Colossians. It is John chapter 1. It's also Philippians 2, and it's Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. And so we need to reference those passages. But again, I think the, the best and most beautiful outline that describes Christ as 
the mighty God, the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, the child that would come at Christmas time, I think we find that it, it beautifully stated in Colossians chapter 1 and in this hymn that we just read a moment ago. So I want us to break this down. We could call it theological, but it could also be hymnology this morning, Jeff, as we break down the words of this first century hymn that would have been prevalent in the church and recorded into this text. How mighty is our God? We see, first of all, in this text this morning that he is mighty God in his revelation of the Father that the mighty God would reveal the Father to us. Now, keep in mind, next week we're going to get in, into looking that his name was also the everlasting Father. But I want us to touch on this picture of, of Revelation here in Colossians chapter 1 where it says he is the image of the invisible God. Invisible meaning there's no way that we could see him. There's no way that we could know him. There's no way that our heart or our mind could grasp the very concept of all that God is unless God reveal himself to us. And Jesus is that image. In the Greek, it's the word icon. It means the exact representation. He would be the very incarnation, the very putting on of flesh of our heavenly Father. When there would be no way that we could see or understand God, the message of Christmas is that when we couldn't find him, God found us. God came to us. God put on flesh. John 1, 1, that other great Christological passage, in the beginning with the word was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then verse 14, that word put on flesh and dwelt in our presence so that we could see the very image of the Father, the one who was invisible, the one who transcended all, the one that we could never grasp with our hearts and our minds, made himself visible for us. Now, I want you to look at another one of these Christological passages here. Turn in your Bible, holding your place in Colossians, turn over to Hebrews and chapter 1. And we'll just look at the first four verses of this. The ladies have been studying the book of Hebrews, and one of the purposes for the writing of Hebrews was so that the, those early Christians would understand that Jesus was better than anything. He was better than any religious system or any religious figure that ever existed, and so he's compared to so many things that would have been common for the Hebrew people, and he was superior to all of that. And we see this beautiful introduction in these first four verses. It says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Remember, John said he was the word, right? He has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, and through him and through whom he made the universe. He is the radiance of of his glory. Jesus radiates the very glory of God. He's the exact expression, some translations here say, the exact representation. That's what it means to be the image. It means to be the exact representation of his nature. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became higher in rank than the angels, just as the name he inherited is superior to theirs. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Now, continue to flip the pages toward the back of your New Testament and look at 1 John verses 1 and 2. 
We know that in John's gospel, he communicated that Jesus was God become flesh. But as he begins to write this letter, and Lord willing, beginning in January, we're going to study all of 1 John that reminds us how to be authentic in our faith. In verses 1 and 2, he says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and what we have touched with our hands. From the moment Jesus was born, he was God, held by the very hands of man. He says, concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. He was mighty God in his revelation of the Father and the fact that had there not been a Christmas, we could never see God, the transcendent God that we can't find. Luke says it this way in in the story of Zacchaeus when everybody was saying, man, what's Jesus doing hanging out with Zacchaeus? And Jesus said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's not about us finding God one day. It's about God finding us, God coming to us, making himself known to us. In John chapter 14, we have this question by Philip after Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Philip is saying, but when are you going to show us the Father? If you'll just show us the Father, then we'll, we'll believe. And Jesus' response was, you've been with me all this time, and still you're saying, show us the Father? He said, if you have seen me, you have also seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He says, I am the image of him. I'm the exact representation of him. The Father and I are one. So he reveals the Father to us. This word image, icon, it was a word that was used to describe the image that would be on a coin. It was supposed to try to to be the exact likeness. Most people in the first century would not have had a picture of Caesar. But when Jesus was asked, you know, should we pay taxes? Hey, we're, we're followers of you now, Jesus. We don't need to pay taxes to the government, right? And he said, somebody bring me a coin. And on the coin was uh, the image of Caesar. It was this word icon, the exact representation of Caesar. And, and in the same way, you could pull out a coin, you could pull out a quarter and say, that's the image of George Washington. It's not somebody else. It's a picture of George Washington. Now, that illustration falls short in so many ways because Jesus was so much better than that. Gabriel had promised Mary that she was going to have a child. He would be the son of the Most High. All that the Father was would be revealed in his Son. God gives birth to God from the moment of the Immaculate Conception. When Mary's asking the question, and remember, he is the mighty God. Whenever asked the question by Mary, how can this be? This doesn't make sense. I haven't known a man at all, and and, and so how can this take place? And he said, 
with God all things are possible. He is a mighty God who has sovereignly chose in all of his might to reveal himself, to reveal his image, and to make himself known in this world through his becoming a man, his becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So he is mighty in his revelation of the Father. Secondly, this morning, I want you to see that he is mighty God in his rule over all things. If God is a mighty God, then he is a sovereign God, and he is a God who has the rule over all things in this world, beyond this world, in your life and in my life. And so the second part of verse 15 says, in Colossians 1, he's the firstborn over all creation. The word firstborn there means to be preeminent. He is preeminent over all things. He is first place over all things. Look at verse 16. Because of him, everything was created. Now, for those who will try to say that Jesus Christ is not the eternal God, they have a big problem with this. Because it says here that Jesus created all things. When people say that Jesus had a beginning point and that he was not from eternity past, they have a problem with this because you can't create yourself if you didn't exist. And so Jesus was eternally God with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He created all things. All things were created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, or the thrones, or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, even the fact that there's human governments that exist are because of his creation. All things have been created through him and for him. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and because of your will they exist and they were created. One translation says that it was for his pleasure as they're worshiping Christ there in heaven. It was for his very pleasure that all things were created. And so he is before all things. He is first place in all things. He is the ruler over all things because he created all things there with the Father in eternity. In verse 17, not only has he created all things and therefore the ruler of all things, he is again before all things, and by him all things hold together. His rule, the fact that Jesus is in control, is what holds all things together. Can you think about how awesome this universe is? And even the planet on which we live, that there is no other planet like us as hard as they try to find, and they can't find another planet quite like this one. And we think of the fact that this planet orbits the sun 93 million miles away from the sun. If we were only a little bit further from the sun, that we would freeze. If we were a little bit closer, we would be extinguished with fire. But who holds this earth on its axis? The Lord Jesus holds this earth on its axis. He holds all things together that he has created. And if he can hold this world together, then he can hold your life together. I remember playing a game. I believe that it was maybe at a Sunlighters meeting over at Mitchell and Nancy Hill's house. It could have been a Deacon family party. I can't remember, but Nancy Hill always came up with these uh, good, fun games. And, and so she did what, I guess you would call it the Tower of Flour. Anybody ever done this before where you get some kind of a, a, a cylinder container 
and you pack this flower into it, you turn it upside down and like a sandcastle, you lift the tower up uh, or you take the container off and this, you've got a tower of flowers sitting there. And, and the way the game would work is that you would then have to take a knife and one at a time, going around the room, you would, you would have to slice a piece of that tower off and run the knife from the top to the bottom. Anybody else ever played this game? Some of you remember? Yeah. You'd run the knife from the top to the bottom and pull away that much flour. And if the whole thing collapsed, then you lose. You had to see how many people could go around and, and, and make a slice, cut a slice off until the, just the tower collapsed. And sometimes we look at our life and we, we say it's kind of like that, that tower of flour. We look at it and we feel like people are carving away at us and we feel fragile and we're thinking, some of you this morning, even when you came to worship, you're thinking, I can't hold it together anymore. My life's falling apart. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something's going on in your family. Maybe, it, maybe it's a, a financial situation, but you're saying, I just don't know if I can hold it together anymore. Maybe it's, you're, you're thinking about your job, your career. Maybe you're thinking about your education this morning. You're saying, I just can't hold it together anymore. Maybe you're thinking about your own sinful choices and your own moral fiber and trying to live for God, and you're saying, I can't hold it together anymore. And the sooner you realize when it comes to your family, when it comes to your life, when it comes to your vocation, when it comes to your calling, when it comes to your moral backbone, you can't hold it all together. The sooner you realize that, the better off you will be because then you'll understand that only Jesus has the ability to hold it all together for me. He is the mighty God. He is the one who created this universe. He is the one who sustains all things. He is the one who holds all things together. And he says, all that the Father has put under my hands, I won't lose any of them. It's not that you're holding on to him and saying, man, I'm just holding on to God the best I can. God is holding on to you, and he's not going to let go. That's the mighty God that Jesus is revealing to us. He is the mighty God. In his revelation, Father, he is a mighty God in holding all things together. I remember we used to often hear, a young lady, and I think she's still out there singing today, uh, has a TV program, I believe. Her name is Babby Mason. And, and she did a lot of songs, wrote a lot of songs, but I remember one song that just wouldn't let go of me because the, the words of the song is all about how God doesn't let go. And I just want to read some, a couple of the verses. It says this, at times the road is heavy, at times the road is long. When circumstances come your way and you think you can't go on, when you're feeling at your weakest, Jesus will be strong. He'll provide the answer. When you found all hope is gone, he'll find a way. And at times your heart is breaking with a pain that's so intense. And all you hold are broken pieces to a life that makes no sense. He wants to lift you up and hold you and mend each torn event. He'll pick up the pieces you thought all had been spent. God will find a way. And I remember the, the, the chorus went like this. If he can paint a sunset, this is our Jesus. If he can paint a sunset and put the stars in place, if he can raise up mountains and calm the storm-tossed waves, if he can conquer death forever to open heaven's gates, I know for you, he'll see you through, he'll find a way. That's the Jesus who is the ruler of all things, creating all things, all things being held together by him. He is mighty God in his rule over all things. And so the church responds to this in verse 18 with an understanding that he is the head of the body, the church. 
he's the one that's in control of our lives because he has demonstrated very successfully his rule over all things. In a lot of churches today, people talk about power struggles. You ever churches talk about that? Some of you are like, man, I've been part of those power struggles before. Man, who, who has the power in the church? Is it that patriarch or matriarch that's been there a long time? Are, are they the ones that are in authority in the church? Is it the, the, the deacon body or some places they call them the, the deacon board? It's a scary thing to be a part of as a board, right? Is it the deacon body? Do they have the, the power in the church? Do they believe in pastoral authority as a pastor and the pastoral staff? Do they have the power in the church? People talk about power struggles and churches. Is it that family that's been a part of the church for so long that they have the influence, they have the power in the church? Listen, as, as this was being written, and it describes the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ, it answers the questions of power struggles in the church, and that is this. The one who has the power in the church is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, did Peter believe in the priesthood of all believers? Absolutely. He wrote about the priesthood of all believers in 1 Peter. Did he believe in pastoral authority and spiritual leadership of the pastors in the church? Absolutely. He wrote about pastoral authority and the leadership of pastors. But even when he's describing to the pastors their responsibility as spiritual leaders in the church, he reminds the pastors that they're not the chief shepherd, that Jesus is the chief shepherd. And he's going to appear one day, and everybody will give an account to him. And so when churches understand that, and I think that there are so many of you that have grown in, in depth and in, in spiritual maturity in our church, and I love the fact that our church gets this. I really do think we understand this, and I pray that we don't forget this. And I pray that we hold on to this. Listen, it's not about does the pastor have the authority or the congregation have the authority or the deacons or any other group. The, the power struggles in the church are resolved when we all come to a place in our lives where we say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And his word has the authority in our lives. And he says, and therefore the preeminence, first place, he has all the power, he has all the authority in his church. And we are all subject to, to walk with him and to know him and to follow in his leadership. It's his name, Philippians 2, that other Christological passage. His name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So he is mighty God in his rule, and we're to allow him to rule in our hearts and lives as well, holding all things together by his mighty power. Listen, here's what he goes on to describe. He is mighty God in his resurrection from the dead. You almost think when you read this hymn, we skipped something, didn't we? We skipped the death. We'll come back to that because his death sandwiches this, this hymn here. But he's mighty God in his resurrection from the dead. Verse 18 again. Not only does he have preeminence in the church, but he is the firstborn from the dead. Preeminent over is the same word that we saw in verse 15. He is firstborn, not over all creation, but the firstborn, preeminent over, mighty God over death through his resurrection. No other religious leader offers that. No political leader offers that. Those who would contend to have first place in your life can't say that they conquered death forever. But Jesus, the child that was born, the son that was given, would give his life and then conquer through the resurrection death forever. In 1897, the story is told that Mark Twain was on a tour. He had gone through some financial troubles, and he was on this long tour of a few years to where he would visit a lot of places and get paid to speak. And, 
and uh, try to help his financial situation out a little bit. But he was in London when there was a rumor started back in New York. Now, we didn't have FaceTime and cell phones and all that cool stuff back then, do we? So, so he's, he's in London, and a rumor begins in New York that Mark Twain has died. And when somebody supposedly asked Mark Twain about that, that would be a crazy thing, wouldn't it, to, to see your, maybe your obituary in the paper tomorrow? <laughs> but it, when he was asked about that, it's said that he made this following statement. Reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. And there's a movement in the world today that's trying to say God is dead. There's even been a couple of movies made to show how that movement has certainly hit our educational institutions. God is dead, and we don't need him or the very concept of him anymore. And I believe the Lord Jesus would stand in our presence today and say, I want you to know reports of God's death have been greatly exaggerated. I conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. I rose victoriously so that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And last week, again, we saw that he's a wonderful counselor, and in the, as the wonderful counselor in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, he would send his Holy Spirit to be that counselor who lives on the inside of us. Listen to what Romans 8, 11 says about this mighty God. It says, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, giving life to your mortal bodies. He goes on to describe, this is empowering you to live the way that you ought to live. Some of you this morning would say, hey, Pastor Robbie, I'm not disagreeing with you. I believe that we have a mighty God, but boy, I wish I was worthy of him. Boy, I wish I could serve him. I wish there was a way that I could know him. He, he's a mighty God, but my life is still falling apart. And, and, and just believing it's not quite enough. And you're right. Just believing it intellectually is not enough. But when you put your faith and trust in this mighty God, this mighty God comes to live inside of you. And his might and his power is greater in you than he that is in the world. God is doing something wonderful in you through his Holy Spirit that comes to live inside of you. The mighty God transforming your mortal bodies to empower you to do what he's called you to do. He's mighty God with us, and he's mighty God in us. Then what about these verses that sandwich this great hymn? He's mighty God in his reconciliation of mankind. Mighty God in his reconciliation of mankind. Remember I said Christmas is a missional message? What was the purpose of Christmas? What was the purpose of Christ's coming? He came into this world born of a virgin, born an infant, laid in a manger, that he might live a life that showed us the Father as the image of the invisible God, but also that he might die your death and my death to reconcile us to the Father. He said he was, God was pleased in verse 19 to have all his fullness dwell in him. Why was it important for all of the fullness of God to dwell in a man? It's a good question, isn't it? Was it necessary for the fullness of God to dwell in a man? Verse 20, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Jesus had to come and be born a man. 
he had to, the word had to put on flesh because only man owed a price that only God could afford to pay. Only man owed a price that only God could afford to pay. See, the wages of sin is death. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual death in total separation from God. But it had to be the death of a spotless lamb. And none of us are sinless. It had to be a a death that would cover infinitely every other person who had ever sinned. And our sins separate us infinitely from God, and we needed an infinite price, an eternal price that would be paid. And so Jesus had to both be fully God and fully man. And as Paul was writing to the church at Colossae, there were those who were creeping in the church. They couldn't grasp that concept, and there was this false teaching that either Jesus was not fully God or he was not fully man, but there was no way that he could be both fully God and fully man at the same time. And what Paul is writing here and why he's recording this hymn here and what he's explaining by saying that the fullness of God dwelled in him was that he was man, so he could pay the price that man owed, but he was God He could afford, he had all that was needed to say that it was a worthy death. And you, he says in verse 21, were once alienated and hostile in mind because of your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. He is mighty God and that he is the only one who can reconcile mankind to the Father. Remember I said this mention of his death sandwiches this hymn. Go back and look at the verses before verse 15. In verses 13 and verse 14, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his Son, the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Christmas is so vitally important, not just because God came and dwelt among us. Christmas is vitally important this morning because Christmas was necessary for there to be an Easter. And the message of Easter is necessary for Christmas to have meant something. Jesus was born to, yes, live a sinless life and show us the Father, but he was born to die. He was born to reconcile mankind to the Father. Christmas was necessary so that God could send his Son in the world to die for the sins of the world, that God could sacrifice his own Son so that you might have a relationship with the Father. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself. Listen to this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. Why? He has given us now what? The ministry of reconciliation. In other words, everything that Jesus was doing when he died on a cross for your sin and for my sin, when God sent his son into the world that he might send him as a savior to the world, that he might die for the sins of the world, That ministry has now been given to you, and this ministry has been given to me, the ministry of reconciliation. 
If that were not the case, the moment you got saved and the moment I got saved, wouldn't it? This has been awesome, right? The moment we kneel in an altar like this, or for me it was at a church camp, for you it might have been by a bedside, but what if the moment we prayed and acknowledged Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, then whew, right up, I mean, we're raptured out of here. We're gone. Man, somebody gets saved and they're just, boom, gone, straight to heaven. Why were we left here? Because now we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Because had the person who led you to faith in Christ been raptured out the moment they got saved, then how would you have come to know Christ? And so the ministry, the, the Christmas message and the ministry of Christ coming into this world has been passed on to you, that we might take up our cross, the taking up of our cross and following Jesus is making him known to all the world. This morning we're receiving a, a financial offering that's given in honor and memory of Lottie Moon. I got to where I didn't use that name a lot because most people don't know who she is, but she was a missionary to China who sacrificed much for the sake of the call in her life. She made this statement. She said, how many there are who imagine that because Jesus paid it all, they need pay nothing, forgetting that the prime object of their salvation was that they should follow in the footsteps of Jesus in bringing back a lost world to God. You know what's interesting about her life? I remember Dr. Paige Patterson telling us this story that when, when she was a young lady convinced that God had called her to China, she was engaged to marry a seminary professor by the name of C.H. Toy. And she became concerned because not only did he not share her passion for China, but he had begun to question. He was buying into what we would call theological liberalism. He began to question parts of the Bible. Was it inspired by God? Was it truly the Word of God? He was teaching as a professor in a Baptist seminary. He began to question the Word of God. He got on that slippery slope of liberalism. In one of the videos I saw, I believe, that Greg posted on our page, he said, I don't know if there's, I hope there's no other missionary that is as lonely as I am for the sake of the call, but she broke her engagement. She broke her engagement because she could not be married to someone who didn't share her belief in the Scriptures and her belief to take the gospel to all the nations. What are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of the call? What are we willing to sacrifice to say that we've embraced the ministry of reconciliation God so loved the world that he gave. Do we love God and we love people enough to give our very best to him, to give our all? How can we do that? We can do that financially through our support of missions, but I think more importantly, we need to give ourselves. Paul said, I urge you in Romans 12, by the mercies of God, to give your own life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. So this morning, that would start with some of you giving your heart and your life to Jesus. If you've never done that before, if you're not sure today that you have a relationship with Christ, don't leave this place till you nail that down. Know that you've given your heart and life to Jesus. But what about giving your heart and life to the call? 
we're going to bring gifts forward and, and, and be involved in ministry in so many ways in our community this Christmas season. But what is the call God has on your life? Are you ready to respond in obedience to that? The, the vision, the calling, the witness that God's called you to be. Would you bow your heads with me?